Welcome again this Sunday morning. It's good to be here. Uh, as you might have noticed, there's a few people not here, including Jamie and Heidi. And whenever you see me pop up on stage, often that's the case. Like they are gone and they've asked me to take one of their sermons. And um, let me just introduce myself. You might not know me. My name is Adri. I work for Inter InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and have worked with international students for a long time here in Pullman and in Moscow. And then Last year made a shift to working with American students, mainly American students, who study abroad and thinking of, of that in terms of missions. What would it look like if you studied abroad but put God at the center and you see yourself as being sent to the nations? And so uh, that's a really exciting challenge that I'm, uh, I'm now, now part of uh, within university. Um, our series over the last few weeks have been tangled in the book First uh, Corinthians, and uh, it's called Tangled because the church of Corinth found itself at a place where it was struggling with the culture around it. The culture was very dominant. Uh, in the culture, certain things were expected and that the, those weren't necessarily uh, aligned with some of the values um, of following Jesus. Uh, we talked about, for example, communion. Sometimes communion looked more like a, um, a student party where people were getting drunk than it looked like sharing... Um, sharing the blood and, 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 and uh, the flesh of Jesus. Or we talked about food sacrifice to idols, question being, can we, can we eat food sacrifice to idols? And uh, that question was being asked because food sacrifice to idols was everywhere. And so those questions kind of came up where culture clashed with those values and kind of what, what kind of decisions they had to make. And so... Um, Paul writes this letter, he actually writes, like there's two of these letters that we still have, First and Second Corinthians, obviously, um, but it's only part of the conversation, and we've talked about this as well. There have been letters probably sent by the Church of Corinth to Paul, we don't have those, there might have been other kind of conversations that we haven't been part of, and so we just get this one side of the conversation. And in that, we see that over the whole book, because we're now getting towards the end of the book of First Corinthians, uh, Paul has been dealing with divisions in the church, it's a very diverse group of people. The biggest division is between Jews, who obviously grew up very differently than the Gentile, non-Jewish uh, believers who participated in different types of religious practices. He deals with some of the sin that happens in the church. Then he answers some of the questions, where we don't really know what the questions are, but we have Paul's answers, right? And uh, then he talks more about how to be united as a church that's so diverse. And then we get to chapter 15, which we'll be in today, and there seems to be a bit of a switch from the very practical to what do we believe, uh, if you wish, theology. And uh, what he talks about isn't particularly a simple concept either. It's about resurrection. And um, resurrection is one of those, those words that feels a bit like Christianese. We use it in the church and, and we kind of understand it most of the time, but then outside the church, nobody really talks about it, right? You, you don't go to your work and talk about resurrection. It's just not a topic that comes up. And working with international students, I know that was always one of the words you needed to explain, and when you're done explaining, you wondered if they actually got it, right? It's, it's, not, it's not an easy-to-understand kind of topic. And so I was thinking, is there anything in our culture that is even slightly similar to resurrection? And I, I, I have to underline slightly. I think as I was thinking through this, there's one term in that gamers might know, and it's to respawn. Uh, my, uh, my kids love to play Zelda on the Nintendo, and um, Zelda is this, this world that seems to go on forever, 
And the hero is Link. And Link is this guy who uh, walks through this world. There's quests for him to do, but there's danger everywhere. There's people that want to, or people, creatures of some sort that go after him and try to kill him. Um, but there's many other ways of dying, I found out. There's, there's cliffs. If you fall down a cliff, it's over. Uh, he even has a little kite he can hang on, which seems like a really bad idea. And he jumps off the cliff, and then he gets tired, and he lets go. Um, he can go into the mountains, and it gets cold, and it gets too cold, he doesn't have the right clothes, he dies. It's too hot, there's lava, and he doesn't have the right armor, he dies. He, he tries to swim to the other side of the river, but he didn't have enough strength, he dies. There's, there's 100,000 different ways to die in this, in this game. Um, but what always happens when Link dies, the, the, the screen goes black, and you see kind of like, kind of almost hear the restarting sound, and there's Link again, just in the same world, and he can do the same things, and he has just enough strength again to keep doing what he's doing. And there's this one scene, I was just checking with Deborah what kind of scene that was. It's, it's a memory. I guess he has forgotten a lot of things because he slept for a hundred years. But now he's remembering again. And um, there's this scene where he remembers somebody telling him something along the line of, be careful, Link, you only live once. And my kid's just snorting, like laughing out loud. Like obviously he doesn't, right? He keeps on coming back and coming back. Well, that's not really what resurrection is about. But I thought it was a fun story either way. Um, what we're going to read is 1 Corinthians. There we see where Jesus or Paul is talking about resurrection. It's a long text. It's 58 verses, so I'm not going to read all of it. We'll have it up here on the screen. Whenever I skip some verses, I'll let you know so you can read along in your Bibles. There's some blue Bibles here that use the ESV translation, which is the one I will be using. And otherwise, read along on the screen or in your Bibles. So if we, uh, I'll give a second to see if we can get it up there. There we go. So let me read. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appears to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared, appeared also to me. Let's continue in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, 
which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> so let me just take a moment to pray and then continue uh, looking what God has for us today. Dear Jesus, thank you for your word, which is alive and we believe um, transforms us. Lord, we, as we talk about a topic that is, is difficult to understand, I pray you open our, our hearts and um, that you give us clarity and that it will um, transform us and, and bring us closer to you. Lord, I pray that these, um, yeah, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will guide this, this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a lot in this text, and there's only so many minutes in a day. So we'll just be talking about some of these, and you might wonder, hey, we're, like, I had questions about this part that you read, and we're not going over that. Well, that's for another day, uh, or we can talk about it later on. Um, so here we see Paul um, addressing a problem, and the, and the core problem that the Corinthian church here seems to be having is that some of them say there isn't a resurrection period, right? They don't believe in a resurrection. And as I mentioned before, it's not something our culture um, really knows about, but even if you would say, like, uh, a dead person coming to life again, that's generally in our culture, that's seen as nonsense, right? That, that doesn't happen. And to be honest, if I look at myself, I, I feel I kind of, like, there's certain things I expect God will, will, will do. I might, I mean, if I have a cold and I pray, he might heal me, or if I pray for somebody who has, like, a certain illness, he might get healed, and the harder the, the illness becomes, or how, how, like, specifically if we start dealing with things like a person being dead, my faith just becomes very small, just being honest in there, right? I haven't seen anybody being raised from the dead. So I find it very difficult for me. It's a leap of faith to say, okay, the resurrection of the dead, Jesus being raised from the dead is a leap of faith that I, that I make. But what is interesting, a lot of the time in our culture we say, um, well, today we know better, Right? Somehow, because we live in a more modern time, we have more access to information, we are smarter, make better informed uh, decisions. But 2,000 years ago, people didn't have um, advanced science. They didn't have access to Wikipedia, right? Like, uh, nowadays, I found out, like, even 20 years ago, I could claim something as a fact, and everybody would be there. Maybe somebody say, like, I don't think that's true. But that, that's kind of, that's where it ended. Nowadays, people pick out their phone and they start going to Wikipedia and they show you like, see, you're wrong. <laughs> we have this kind of like, we're checking facts live on the spot. And we say, well, these people didn't have that. So obviously when somebody came up with a story like, oh, he was dead, but he's now alive again. And then another person said the same thing. They, they just believed it. And we see in this text, that's not true. These people are dealing with the exact same problems. For them, it's just as hard to believe that the resurrection of the dead is something that is true. And this is not just in this text. We see it when Paul goes on a missionary journey to Athens, and he comes to this place here where there's a bunch of philosophers, people that um, he says are, all they do all day is talking and thinking about ideas, right? And so he thinks, well, this is a great place to start talking about the gospel, and they're actually listening. They're actually interested in these new ideas that I haven't heard before. But when he mentions the resurrection of the dead, people start mocking him. This is not like, they were willing and very open to listen to all kinds of stuff, but when this topic came up, eh, they weren't that, in, that, that sure about that. It was definitely something hard to believe. And then even if you look at 
the Jews in the first century, they had a concept of the resurrection of the dead. But for them too, that happening in their time, during their lives, was not something that they could conceive. And uh, just to give you an example, you know probably the story of Jesus, where Jesus raises Lazarus, right? Well, when Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick, he actually waits on purpose, which always kind of freaks me out. Jesus, why aren't you just directly going? He's sick. Go heal him. He doesn't do that. He waits. And then only when Lazarus has passed away does he enter town. And Martha, one of his, the sisters of Lazarus, finds out that Jesus is coming into town, and she runs up to him and says, if only you had come earlier, right? When he was still sick, you could have healed him. And so from that already, we see that she, she believes that Jesus is very powerful. She can heal the sick. But this is one level further, right? And so there is this interaction that Jesus then has with her. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So they have a concept. This is going to happen at the end. But again, here and right now in history, not, not so sure about that one. So Paul says to the Corinthian church, there are consequences for not believing the resurrection. You cannot just pick and choose your faith. Say, hey, this part I like, but that part I feel uncomfortable with, so I'm just going to toss it out. He says, you can't do that. There's consequences. If you say there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus' resurrection isn't true either. You can't have it both ways. And if Jesus dies, then... There is, then you don't have anything. You're actually proclaiming a faith that is not true. You're be, to be pitied. That's what he says. We have no hope. And the other thing is, we can live however we want. Right? He says, eat and drink for tomorrow we will die. That can be your attitude. So what is Paul's approach to this problem? <clears throat> he starts this passage with remember. Remember the gospel that I preach to you. And it's interesting that if you look at Paul's writing, he does this all the time. He keeps bringing up the gospel as if he hasn't told it before. And he, he, So that's why he uses the word remember, because I think, just looking at my own life, remembering how powerful and how transformative the gospel really is and kind of what kind of a blow my mind kind of experience I had when I first heard it and, and got parts of it, right? Because the, the story of God is so big, I never get all of it, but I got parts of it. And I remember how excited I was. And then for months I was excited, but eventually I kept hearing the gospel and I was like, oh yeah, I've heard that story. And I kind of started checking out. Even a story that is so important and so impactful as the gospel, as I was hearing it over and over again, it became old and I needed to be refreshed. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's again telling it differently. Here is the gospel that I preach to you. It's one of the reasons I think it's so important to be part of a Bible study where you discover things for yourself, where there, there's questions asked and nobody's giving you yet an answer. And you're just looking. It's like, what might the answer be? And then when you discover it for yourself, this little flame gets kind of fanned again. And you're like, oh yeah, this is really exciting. And Paul goes one step further. It's not just to remember. He says, this is true. It's not a story we made up. And he makes a really great case because he starts naming people. You notice the word Cephas, right? That is, that's Peter, one of the disciples. He says, Jesus showed up to Peter. Well, if you don't believe it, go check with Peter. He's still around. This is, of course, written just a few, like, few decades after all of this took place. 
or he says the disciples, they saw Jesus every rise from the dead. Rise? That sounds wrong. Raise, right? Anyway, I'll get that right eventually. But they, they were there. Go check with them. And then there were 500 people who saw him at the same time. I mean, they can't all be liars, right? Go check with them. Most of them are still alive. And then he says, James and the other apostles. And then the last of those is me. I even got to see him, Paul says. So there is some great evidence for this. This is not something made up. It is, this is true. And then he says in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits, of those who have fallen asleep. So there's two interesting phrases here, first fruits and fallen asleep. And I want to take a little bit of time on both of those. So first fruits, obviously the word first is in there. It's, it's the, the, the first part of the harvest. If you look at the Old Testament, there were all kinds of things that people would give as the first little bit they had gotten, right? Like you believe that God has given you everything, and so you give a little bit of the first and the best to God. That was true with animals, but it was also true with the harvest. There's actually a whole list in the Old Testament uh, about the first crops being given to God, the first wheat, the first olive oil, new wine, honey, wool, fruit, all those things, the first little bit of it given to God. And part of what happens here is that it's an indicator of everything else still to come. You give this first little bit to God and, and say, thank you, God, here you have this back, but it's an indication of everything else still to come. And this is why what Paul is doing, calling Jesus the first fruits. He says, Jesus raised from the dead first. But that's not by itself like in, in, in one-time occurrence. It's an indicator of the rest of the harvest still to come. It is everybody who is a follower of Jesus will eventually be raised with him from the dead. And then the other one, and he uses that phrase a couple times as well, is the, the, the phrase that they have fallen asleep which I always thought was a euphemism for death, but I think it might be a little bit more than that. So I have a, hopefully a picture up here. We were, um, Kelly and I and our family three weeks ago were in, um, in Chalice, Idaho. And many people don't know Chalice, Idaho. It's a small town. If you go from here east to Lolo Pass, uh, about three and a half hours drive, and then you go five hours south into Idaho. That's where it is. Tiny little town. But we were there because Kelly's grandma passed away in October, and that's where she grew up. And a lot of her family is from there as well. So we had some, a really nice small um, graveyard uh, uh, sermon and, or, or, or service, to better be said. And uh, then we got some time to just walk around this really old graveyard. And uh, a lot of Kelly's family have been buried there for over 100 years. And so there's just lots of people. And specifically, it's really fun to see some of the, the older folks saying like, oh, yeah, this is family. I remember what he was doing. And he had, an, he had a problem with this other guy. And they were mad at each other. I mean, they know all these relationships. For me, it's just like a bunch of names on stones, right? But they, they, they have these, these stories uh, still ready to tell. And so uh, we spent a lot of time there just hearing stories. And, and this one, I, took a pic I only took a picture of this one. And I did, and I, you can't really see, the name is Julia Funkhauser, which you wouldn't say that, that is that it's not the last, same last name as Kelly's, and it's not the, her first name either, but Kelly's middle name is the same as this lady, and for some reason they didn't put the middle name on there, but Kelly's name is Loveland, and this, this, this lady too, and so it's her namesake, and so I want to take a picture of it. But then later on I was looking at it, and you see kind of, it's kind of hard to see, but at the top it says, only sleeping. 
I love that about some of these older, older graveyard stones, right? They, they, they put different things on there nowadays. Uh, but you could almost add to it, only sleeping, waiting till the resurrection. And, and there's similar kind of language, and I wish I had taken some more pictures because there were other stones also mentioning the resurrection in one way or the other. Um, and we can take that again off because maybe having a gravestone behind me the entire time might be distracting. But uh, Only sleeping is one of those phrases we see in the New Testament quite a bit. Uh, Jesus does it when, if you remember the story of the, uh, the little girl who is sick and then passes away, and he goes over there and he says to the people there, there's lots of people there, and he says, leave, for this girl has not died but is asleep. And of course, they began laughing. They're like, you don't know the difference between being dead and being asleep. This girl is obviously dead. He uses the phrase asleep. And similarly, if you look at the passage with Lazarus um, in 11, John 11, 11, he, he, before he goes to Lazarus, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And similarly, his disciples don't get it. It was like, what is he talking about? But Jesus uses the phrase fallen asleep. And now again, two times here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see also the phrase fallen asleep. Now, why that phrase exactly is used, I'm not 100% certain on, but I think there is one little piece of it that I understand. Asleep is something temporary. It's not permanent. You don't fall asleep and then never wake up. Asleep indicates there's something temporary. And so when we die and go to heaven, it says this is a state that's temporary. This is not for always. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's, heaven is a good thing, but it's a temporary thing until the resurrection. So now there might be a whole bunch of questions. So, okay, well, what's heaven then? And like, how does that fit into all of this, right? Um, interesting, when I was reading it, the Bible doesn't say that much about heaven as an afterlife. It says some things, but it doesn't say a whole lot. Now, you might say, hey, Audrey, I was reading Matthew the other day, and Jesus uses like heaven like a bazillion times, right? Like, you're obviously wrong here. Um, and he does, but he uses it always in the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And why Matthew uses that phrase is because the Jews wouldn't use the name of God. And so he, he was writing to a Jewish audience, and so he couldn't really say the kingdom of God, which is the phrase used in all the other Gospels. And so he uses the word the kingdom of heaven, but it's exactly the same thing as the kingdom of God. And isn't that heaven then? Well, I think heaven is part of that, but it's a much bigger, um, bigger thing. I think the best way to look at it, at least this has been really helpful for me to look at it this way, is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is that place where God is king. And it's this other dimension, but it at certain times enters our world. And it enters our world when the people that belong to the king, the followers of Jesus, say yes to him and do what Jesus tells them to do. Or like we heard last week when we had some people here, the Pagels and the Haas family up here, uh, because they were sharing about their mission trip to Boise. Part of what they said was, and I don't remember who said it exactly, but this attitude of saying yes before Jesus asks. Whatever you're going to ask, I'm going to say yes. And then they saw amazing things happen, even though it was often in kind of small interactions with people. To those people, it really mattered, the interactions they had. They saw people differently, they acted differently, and a little bit of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, broke through, and people saw it. So heaven, also in the future, but it's also today. It's much bigger than that, the kingdom of heaven. So where does our idea of heaven, or at least our stereotypical idea of heaven, then come from, right? I was thinking, like, what are the, some of the stereotypical components of heaven? We think of clouds, that's generally part of it. 
we, we somehow grow angel wings, right, on the back. Um, everything is white, like really, really white, like painful to the eyes white. And then there are these harps. I, I was really confused about the harps. It's like, who, who came up with that, right? Like, where did that come from? It's not from the Bible. Uh, I'm actually not quite certain where it came from, but I thought one argument seemed the best. Like, if you look some at the paintings and the depiction of Greek gods, they often have lyres, which is also a stringed instrument, which looks a little bit like a harp. And so these elements are borrowed from all kinds of other cultures, thrown together, and that's kind of where some of our ideas about heaven come from. It's been influenced, at least in Western thinking, by people like Dante, who wrote a book about the layers of hell and the layers of, of heaven. And I was reading through some of the layers of heaven just really quickly to kind of get an idea of what he's talking about. And it seems that like, depending on how good you were, on earth, you get a different level either in heaven or in hell. Um, if you've ever watched the, the, the TV series, uh, um, The Good Place, you kind of get that, right? Everybody gets a score. And the higher the score, and certain, certain moments there's like a, a minimum amount of, of points you need to have in order to make it to the good place. And, and those ideas come all the way back from Dante, which I think is 13th century. And then Michelangelo, he, he was one of the first people that started making these really big paintings about heaven and hell. There is one in the Sistine Chapel that's called um, Judgment Day. And you see people in heaven sitting on clouds. And, and then in the bottom, you see people in hell, hell being tortured. And a lot of our ideas from heaven and hell come uh, not necessarily from these people, but these people were the ones that collected these ideas. And those have become part of our thoughts, not so much from the Bible. So what does the New Testament then focus on, if it isn't so much heaven as an afterlife? It is the resurrection. We know that a lot of first century Jews believed in a bodily resurrection, which is interesting, and this is just a bit of a side note, but I was reading about it. If you read the Old Testament, you will not see much about resurrection. But what you do see is this idea of restoration, restoration of um, the people of Israel, Everything will be restored. There will be this, this uh, perfect leader, ruler, and, and, and it'll just be this perfect life. That's kind of where, where people were, yeah, what, what people were longing for, this kind of restoration. And then from exile to Jesus' time, this idea of resurrection also enters the place as kind of complete restoration. It's not just like a country or um, uh, relationships or having a good ruler, even death is going to be defeated, and there's going to be that resurrection. And um, people in first century um, Israel, definitely, a lot of them believed in that idea. We saw that with Martha, right? When she interacted with Jesus, she believed in a bodily resurrection at the end of time. Um, then we know that there's two different religious groups that had different ideas on this. We had the Pharisees, which believed in the resurrection, so in many ways had some similar values as Jesus did, even though they clashed a lot, right? They had some similar values there. And then you had the Sadducees on the other side who did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. So there, there's a little bit of a split there, but there was definitely a good group of people that believed that the resurrection was going to happen. And then if you look at Paul's writing, we see it here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see it in other places that he really focused on the resurrection, like our hope is in Jesus and that life, eternal resurrection. Um, so let me just um, pull a few out here. Romans 6, 5, he says, We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, uh, let me read 11. And so, somehow, we will attain the resurrection from the dead. And then really the place where all of that comes together is in Revelation. 
when uh, this revelation is written by Peter, who got a vision from God, and there's a lot in there, right? Like sometimes we're kind of scared to go into the book because there's so much in there and it's so many images and it's unclear. Um, but one of the really cool images that we see here is in Revelation 21. And um, Peter sees a new heaven and a new earth. Or, depending on how you interpret the Greek, you could also simply say a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. So let me read a little piece of uh, the beginning of 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order, older, sorry, old order of things has passed away. Now, often we look at that passage and say, oh, that's heaven. But if you read carefully, you see that at the beginning it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. If it's coming down out of heaven, then the location of Peter at this moment cannot be heaven, but must be earth. And so this is the place where when everybody is raised from the dead, on earth, heaven comes down, and there's this interaction between heaven and earth where God is like always present with his people. It's, it's a really cool image and kind of hard to, like, put my brain around, right? What I've realized just by doing that, like, by looking at bodily resurrection and what that means to us, I, I think part of it for me means that the story of God is always bigger than I think it is. My attitude of saying, oh, I get it, right? I've heard this a hundred times before. And then I see God is not just interested in saving us from our sin and taking us away to another place where there won't be any pain. He is actually in the business of restoring all things. And if he talks about all things, he also talks about defeating death and even restoring this. And I, as a, in like a finite human being, cannot understand how that can be true. But that's what he says. I've done only in my life a tiny bit of restoration, or we call it renovation. I was just talking with you guys about our house. Uh, it, like, it's a 1907 house. When we bought it, it needed a lot, a lot of love. And um, we've been working on it for nine years, and we'll probably be working on it for another nine years to get it to the place where we say, okay, maybe, maybe this is finished. Restoring things is a lot of work. And then there are certain things that are harder to restore. When we moved to Pullman nine years ago, we had a little Honda Accord, and I loved that car. And then we got in a car crash. And the car was totaled, and we had to say goodbye to it. Now, total didn't mean we couldn't restore it anymore, but it would just be more money than the car was actually worth. And then you start talking about things like health, where people get sick and they can get better, or we lose things like hearing or eyesight or things like that, and restore, like even with our amazing technology, we aren't able to restore vision, restore sound, like make somebody healthy again. And so, wrapping my mind around that and seeing that God says it's, He's going to restore all things, let, let us look quickly at Acts 3, 21, where Peter, this is just after the, the Holy Spirit has come on to the disciples, and they are 
are talking in many different languages, and people are hearing the gospel proclaimed, and then Peter does this big sermon, and he says in Acts 3.21, heaven must receive him, Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets, to restore everything. So again, the story of God is so much bigger, and death is included in his restoration plan. So what else does that mean for us? Because that's kind of the rational kind of way of looking at it, right? What does that mean for us? It's like for our hearts, for the way that we, we, we walk in our daily lives. And um, I was looking at uh, the story of a professor, Gary Habermas. He is a um, theologian. He's done a lot of research on the resurrection, and he knew all the right answers. And then in his life, he... Um, he had to deal with his wife getting cancer and eventually passing away. This is a while ago in 95, but I thought it was um, just a really touching story. Um, I'm just reading this little piece from what he says. How did this all help me? So all the things he knew about the resurrection, right? He knew all these right answers when, he was when, when Debbie, his wife, was dying. I imagined what God might say to me in response to my questions about Debbie. He would ask me, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? Of course you did, Lord, I would respond. But why is Debbie dying? Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? The question would come again. Yes, Lord, but Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? I imagined God repeating the same question until I got this point. There was an answer to Debbie's suffering, even if I didn't know it. If Jesus has been raised, then I can trust that Debbie will be raised someday too. It was sufficient to know that because of Jesus' resurrection, and because Debbie and I belong to Jesus, then we will be together again for all eternity. This is the force of resurrection faith for all who trust in Jesus Christ. This answer was sufficient for me in 1995, and it remains so today. Through all of my pain, this truth has never failed to comfort me and to provide tremendous peace. So I've been thinking about this. This is a difficult topic, right? I've been thinking about this for two weeks now. And um, I believe, like, believing in heaven is a good thing, and it is there. And I believe God takes us away from pain and suffering. But I also, now after spending some time on this, believe that the resurrection is better still. Because it isn't simply escaping the pain and suffering from this world, but God is making all those things right again. It is the next level of me not understanding what God is doing, but I believe that it is good. And so I want to send you away, and then we'll sing one more song, but I will send you away with this blessing, which is the last part of 1 Corinthians. And uh, you might be able to read along on the, on, on, the, on, on the screen as well, or just listen to it. This is what Paul says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you guys want to stand with us, we're going to worship with the last song. Um, it's called Build Your Kingdom Here, and I think it fits really well with what was spoken today about um, God's kingdom is here and in the future. And it's up to us saying yes to Jesus, even before we know what he's going to ask, to start building his kingdom here now. That's what we get to do.